everyone, and welcome to episode number 62 of Real Blend, a podcast that gets mentioned repeatedly in the Mueller Report. You guys don't know that. <laughs> we are all <laughs> over that thing. <laughs> now I hope that uh, all the political junkies continue to follow Kevin, because he is uh, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and he wants to hear all your political opinions. My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend. <clears throat> And I am once again pleased to be joined by my regular co-hosts in Real Blend Insanity, starting with Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. BDK, how are you, sir? Right, yeah, so you mentioned the uh, the opening joke about the Mueller report. Yeah, my tweets have been exploding um, <laughs> for people thinking that I'm the other Kevin McCarthy. I, I just got at least 20 of them on the way home uh, just now. Like, I, 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 at and this point, weird, they're all your mom. Yeah, every one of them is my mom <laughs> mistaking me for the other Kevin McCarthy. Your mom saying completely exonerated. Right. <laughs> and the other voice you hear, of course, is Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Jake, sir, how are you? Jonathan, I'm well. How are you? Good. We're both going to go see Dumbo in a few hours. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. And that is one of our topics that we will talk about on this week's episode of Real Blend. And also, speaking of Chicago... We are plugging the Chicago meetup. It is taking place on Saturday, April 13th. Um, still looking like we're aiming for 5 o'clock Central Time. Gabe, I know you don't speak, but do you have an idea of where we're going? Have you done any research on this whatsoever? Gabe has an idea. He's saying yes. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to share that with you guys shortly. And Gabe, while you're at it, let me know how many people have RSVP'd. To RSVP to the event, you have to go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Real Blend Chicago, all lowercase, and you can sign up to join us at the Chicago meetup on Saturday, April 13th. It's also taking place during Star Wars Celebration. We still don't know the title of that stupid movie, and we I know, okay, I have, a, I have a theory about that. Um, okay. Do you remember, uh, you may have even been there, uh, for episode three, Revenge of the Sith, they right. did not release the title of that in advance until uh, this special video presentation they did at Comic-Con. It was essentially, okay. they were going through, it went to like episode four, and then A New Hope, and then it went to episode five, Empire Strikes Back, and then it went to six, and then it went to one, then it went to two, and then it started showing a lot of behind-the-scenes footage of them shooting Revenge of the Sith, and all of a sudden three came up and it said Revenge of the Sith, and that's the first time anyone knew what the title was. I don't okay. think we're going to get the title until the trailer drops uh, at during the, the episode, panel. which I think would be amazing. Yeah, no, that's the, great. That's, I mean, at this point, we're so close. Don't release it. Just just tell us whenever the trailer drops. I think oh, yeah. I think JJ's just trying to figure out a way to fix that Han Solo name scene in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the scope <laughs> Listen, of the entire so many franchise in the Last Jedi that are far worse no. than the Solo. Na- you're 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 telling me. The solo every name scene, scene is the worst scene, scene in, in Star the Last Wars Jedi history. Is, oh, oh my God. Have you it ever is. seen Star Wars? <laughs> every one of them. Did you, did every you one see of them. what George Lucas did to Jabba's Palace and, and uh, Return of the Jedi? Yeah, of course I, I did. Yeah. 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 You think that that's already. better than the Star I've Wars name? Them. You lose all credibility. Well, lose first, all of all, credibility first of all, that's what, what George Lucas did to Return of the Jedi was post the film being released. I'm talking about the theatrical released version. That is the worst scene. Sean... Is it's there a clumsy. worse scene than You're that clumsy. scene in Star Wars? I think there are worse scenes in that movie, but yes, that scene is particularly horrible. So anyway, before we also, slip down you know, that rabbit hole again. Also, enough with the again. Real Blend tweets. I, I, I want control of the Real Blend Twitter account. 
How how did we start deciding who gets to tweet from that account and who doesn't? Because I've got things to say. <laughs> I think you should have. I will give you access to it. You're will, more than welcome to I take it over. If the, if the password is Kevin's mom, I'm going to be so upset. <laughs> it is now. How awesome would it be? And everyone knows. How awesome would it be if JJ opens the film up and says, guys, I just want to apologize for that okay. scene that took place in Solo. Just He comes on screen, and, it's, and that, that's the scroll. It's him scrolling physically up the screen. Hi, this is JJ Abrams. And I'm yeah. very sorry for what you just, saw in Solo. And, and at the, the panel, yellow, you just see one guy stand up and just, just storm out. It's just you these yellow one words. One silhouette stand up and just storm out of the room. The yellow words. Guys, comma, it's JJ, period. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that I allowed this to happen. He did it! You know, it's not his fault. Every scene in Attack of the Clones is worse than the Solo name scene. No, it's not. You're losing at this point. You're losing all Star Wars credibility. <laughs> and you're just trying to you're you're trying to attach real emotions to a joke, and they should right. they should be separate. Let's get to uh, reviews, which is where this we is going to be one of those episodes. I can podcast. It feels like it's going to be yes. Um, this is from uh, C O Beck. Okay, so this is Cody Beck, who actually works with us at um, Cinema Blend, and he says for casual for casual movie fans and industry nerds. Full disclosure. I work with one of the hosts, which is me, uh, but it still took me a long time to finally dive into a full episode. I've since binged 10 episodes in the past two days and can't wait for more. I'd be happy if they threw in a few more puns, though. Also oh loving the shenanigans God. on Twitter. Hashtag Team Gabe. Now, a lot of that, I oh think, is, is... I think a lot of that's inside jokes. <laughs> I'm not quite sure he supports the puns or Gabe, because really, <laughs> who would support either of those? But uh, that's a nice review. Also, Team Fatman76, which rules. That name alone, it makes you one of my favorite Real Blend fans and listeners. It says, best movie podcast out there. Thank you guys for having the most accessible movie podcast out there. You guys keep it positive, fun, and clean. I love your self-created memes. Between the three of you, you guys love like all movies, which is very refreshing. Done. Kevin's mom has got it going on. Kirk, with an exclamation point. So again, throwing Man. us off the scent wow. that it was really Kevin's mom who was Team Fat Man seventy six. <laughs> team Fat Man seventy six. She called me about that one. She was like, "Is this gonna give me away?" Team Fat Man seventy six. I said, "No, it, it goes along with the movie, the show." I have to point out too that after your parents saw us, oh man, uh, they asked if. Uh, Real Blend did an episode on it, which I, I love. I think that's great that they're yeah. going to listen to the, the we, Us conversation. We joke a lot about my mom being our only listener, and I don't think my mom's ever actually listened to an, an episode of our show. <laughs> I know my dad has, but my mom is aware I have a we have a podcast. So, yeah, I mean, like, well, first of all, when, after they saw Us, my their first review was, wow, and then holy S-word. That was their first review. Uh, and then the second text was from my mom saying, have you guys discussed this on Real Blend? I'd like to listen to it. Later this episode, we are going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about us. We will definitely warn you guys before we get to that point. Oh, this is so going to be you, a very combative episode, I can already tell. If you haven't seen it yet, you'll be able to punch out and uh, come back after you've checked out Jordan Peele's new episode. Uh, we have to phrase that in a way because, you know, it's not like any of us didn't like it. It's just we've been having no, this conversation in the text Some of us are, are more forgiving of flaws than others. This is true. Um, we are at 91 star ratings, speaking of reviews, before we move off of them. And we really would like to get to 100. So head over to the iTunes uh, account on or Apple Podcast app. You can leave us a rating. You can leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. It really helps us grow the show. I think Apple pays attention to the number of uh, ratings and reviews that shows pick up. And we're trying to get this show in front of as many people as possible. So let's get right to news. And we'll start with us. 
which had a massive $70 million debut, largest for uh, a number of different records, largest for an original live action movie since Avatar, uh, largest for a horror. Is it a largest horror? I think it, it said a number of... It, it I think it's third largest horror parts. behind It, Chapter 2, and uh, the oh. recent Halloween remake. But what about That's largest cool. original horror movie? Is that... Is yeah, right? I mean, if we, if we want to start like so. getting really technical, yeah, yes, it is yeah. the largest. I think they someone listed out the number of films that have won the box office that weren't sequels, remakes, or adaptations, and there was like six movies total. Yeah. And one of them was The Hitman's Bodyguard, which is yeah. really sad. And then the other, like, the top one of those six was Get Out. So basically, Jordan Peele has two of the last six non-remakes uh, and adaptations. So this would make me really sad, and I'm sure you guys too, if Jordan Peele got snatched up for some type of major franchise, right? Like you He's want not to just going continue. to. Yeah, he'll just make his own movies, right? Right. He doesn't need he'll... to. He doesn't. Uh, I saw an interview with him talking about that specifically. Uh, where he uh, he's like, I'm gonna do my own thing. Essentially, is what I what I, what he said. I think it was, with, there... it, was with, it was it was with Josh Horowitz from MTV. I saw a clip on his Twitter. It was basically like he asked him flat out, "Are you gonna do Star Wars or Avengers?" And he goes, "No, I got too many things to do." So I think I think the there's no way he's gonna do a, a, no. a franchise movie. Why not, why not just keep making original films? And obviously, well, you know. What I see them trying to get him to do is to take over a horror property. Like if he mm-hmm. just because he's done. You know, kind of a pseudo horror thriller in Get Out, and then this one's a straight horror movie. But I think that's just that's laziness of studios trying to fit him into. Yeah, a box. I think the the uh, the reach that he would go with that is what he's doing right now, which is taking over the Twilight Zone, and which is something that had a major influence on him. In fact, there was a Twilight Zone episode that was sort of for him the influence that he ended up uh, using for us. Sure. Um, my concern is, and I'm curious if if you guys are seeing any connection at all. Um, you know, after two movies, everyone's going nuts and comparing him as as the next Hitchcock, and all of this seems eerily familiar to uh, early of Shyamalan's career, where everyone, yeah. you know, I, I think back to now that infamous uh, Newsweek cover that uh, called him the next Spielberg, mm-hmm. and I, I could, I'm worried about, and and I think I have more faith in Peel than I do in, in Shyamalan, um, but but Peel starting to feel like he has to deliver on people's expectations. Yeah, um, for sure. You know, you know, with with Shyamalan, it was the twist ending. With Peel, I wonder if it's uh, the deeper metaphors and themes represented. You know, is he is he going to start feeling like he has to keep making these movies with these deep metaphors and themes until it gets to the point where it becomes a fault in his films? Sure, and especially if he takes over Twilight Zone and they become you know really smart Black Mirror type things, yeah. where every sort of episode is a commentary on something relevant and um important yeah i could see that being an issue so to that end you'd almost want to see him just make a slapstick comedy (laughs) next to just show like hey i have a bunch of different things i can't i mean he's one of the funniest dudes on the planet yeah without question right but to give a little a little perspective on box office though which is interesting to me i was looking back at the numbers six cents opened up to about 26 million i believe opening weekend domestically went on to make over 600 million dollars worldwide then close to 700 million dollars worldwide and that was 1990 Six ninety seven. Nine. Um, okay. Uh, was it before whatever year that yeah. was early? It was so early. twenty years ago. Okay. So Unbreakable only opened up four million dollars more in its opening yeah, weekend. Yeah, but I'm thinking more like less one and two. Uh, I'm thinking more because Unbreakable was a little bit more chill. Um, but really, from Six Sense to Signs is where it went massive to me. That because that because it was after Signs that he had that Newsweek article come out about him. So I'm thinking now where you know the movies are getting bigger. 
the, uh, the, the response is getting bigger. Uh, his name is becoming more synonymous with success and synonymous with uh, films that people want to see. It's that trajectory that, I mean, forget the fact that it's one, one film versus two versus three. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's, the, the, that's sort of the parallels that I'm, I'm seeing in, in both of their careers. Oh, I definitely agree with you on the parallels for sure. I mean, there's definitely a sense. I think Jordan Peele understands that too. There was a tweet this weekend where M. Night Shyamalan tweeted out his congratulations to Jordan Peele and Jordan Peele responded back yeah, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a gif, which I didn't really understand what that gif meant. Uh, I guess it was like some kind of inside joke or maybe it was something that I just completely missed. Um, I will say this, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I, it's an interesting point because you think back to The Sixth Sense and how, my, how blown away we all were by that film, right? And mm. Unbreakable is my favorite M. Night Shyamalan film, but... There is something to be said about, like, kind of going with, along with Jake said about the deeper themes of Jordan Peele's films. Uh, I think he has a lot to say. I, I don't know that The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable and Signs were saying a lot about our society. Sure. I think they were. I think they were great horror films. I think I look back on Sixth Sense. It was an, an eerie film. I can't think of a filmmaker, maybe besides George Romero, who was embedding that type of social commentary into their horror films as well as Jordan Peele is. And I, I don't think, I mean, Romero's movies were all, you know, Dawn of the Dead was about consumerism. You know, I, I don't think that Peele, and it's funny because I actually agree with Jake completely, and I, and I and actually I'm worried about that as well. But uh, the quality of filmmaking we're seeing from Jordan Peele, I don't think we've ever seen from a filmmaker taking these two genres, meaning a horror genre and embedding incredible social commentary that is then creating so much to think about and talk about. I mean, listen, I love the Romero's success. a really good comparison, though. You think about Night of the Living Dead and then and Dawn yeah. of the Dead. Those two specific. He kind of lost it after a while, but specifically those two are a really just, good comparison. It's the, it's the commentary to me that's interesting. Like, Us is a film that I... And, and this is this this is maybe this is a recency effect, but I can't think of another film that I've walked away from that I've had so many conversations about since Get Out, uh, and and you know obviously Inception stirred conversations about that possibility, what that ending was. But Us is a different level. I was sitting in a meeting today with an anchor of mine who had completely different meanings of what she took away from Us than I did. That's and, interesting. And she watched it from a mother's perspective who has three children. I watched it from a person who's married does not have children. So there's a there's a lot going on. It's almost like a Pixar movie, right? Pixar makes films that draw they, they they hit you differently if you're a kid you see it differently if you're an adult you see it differently yeah but pixar endings make sense see then that's where i disagree with you <laughs> uh, but we're not, i'm not allowed to, i know i'm not allowed to get into it just yet i'm sorry not yet not, sorry. not yet not yet not yet it's funny i'm 50 50 i can i understand where jake's coming from but I also think Jordan Peele is smart enough to not let himself get M. Night Shyamalan. And I, and I think that M. Night Shyamalan, I was always a fan of his. So I, I stuck with him in the sense of I loved The Village. I think The Village is an incredible Actually, film. Actually, I, I really like The Village. Like the Village is really good. Yeah. Even the, no, I like the ending. I love the ending of the, Village. The ending, I, the ending makes the, the, the first three quarters of the film pointless. So, but no, si- Signs, to me, is the one that, that doesn't hold up. Nah. Rewatch oh, signs. signs. I, I, to me, it's signs really slow. That, Doesn't hold oh, up. Oh, I, I think signs is um, like like a Jordan Peele film. It's a movie that's much deeper than what's on the surface. It is a movie about a man struggling with Agreed. his demons and a man struggling mm-hmm. with his faith. And 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 I mean, whenever I think of signs, 
the aliens are are the third or fourth thing I think about. I think of yeah, so many yeah. other deeper things. Yeah. Um, no, as opposed to the most horrifying scene in Signs is is the is the the wife against the tree. Hundred percent. And I mean that that scene to me that's an that's an incredible yeah. sequence from an emotional Say what you standpoint. want to about about Mel Gibson and, and the kind of person he is outside yeah. of film. He gives an incredible performance. That's yeah. probably one of his last great performances. Uh, was mm-hmm. in Signs. I also love Lady in the Water. And, and, yeah, and, and, that's, that's where that you begin to lose me. But see, I thought that movie was cool because I I love what he did with that film, and I also love the casting of that film. How Paul Giamatti was great in it. Uh, I just think, yeah, it's funny you say that about M Night. I think there's a lot to be said similar paths, and I think Jordan Peele is smart enough to not go down a path where everything has to be a twist. It's interesting. Think about it this way, and we'll get into us spoilers later in the podcast. The twist in us isn't really what we're all talking about. You no, know what I mean? Not at all. The ending of M Night. No, hold on. My point. My point is the point I'm making is M Night's movies were all hinged on a twist. Yeah, they were all hinged on that. Like the Village, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable. What's the gigantic twist at the end? That's Here's a- my argument against that, though. I think right now we're less than a week of this movie being out. I think the reason a lot of people aren't out publicly talking about the twist is out of respect for people that haven't seen it yet. I know a lot of people that are coming up and going, like, we've got to talk about the ending, but like we need to step away so other people around us don't. So I do know a lot of people that want to talk about the twist, but I, and, and the reason I think a lot of people think about the twist of The Sixth Sense is because we're so far removed from that movie that that's what everyone thinks about. I think you give us a year, and a lot of people are going to want to talk about those stupid-ass tunnels that, that apparently but, all the... But- all right, we're going to get diff- to us. One thing I will say, the difference is I didn't walk into us expecting a twist. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's fair. So like with, 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 with Unbreakable and Sixth Sense and Village, I walked in going, what is that M. Night twist going to be? And even Get nor, Out. And nor do I think that Jordan's next movie needs to have a twist. No, it doesn't. No. But if it does, it's okay. But but he handled this twist in a way where it wasn't the centerpiece of the movie. It was an, it was an arc that occurred. I think, yeah, okay. So I, I think, and this is a conversation we'll have to t- have later. I need to get your definition on what the twist is. Yeah, we okay. will. Okay, let's yeah. save that to because, the... Because I, I very much expected a twist, but my definition of what a twist is happened. So okay. we'll, we'll talk I think that. basically we all have confidence that Jordan will always be able to peel back the layers <laughs> on <laughs> his story. God, Sean. And find what's worth talking about. Don't that, you think, Kevin? That was actually really good. You know what's funny is uh, this little, <laughs> little Easter egg from my Us interviews uh, that yes. I don't think anybody picked up on because you can't see the shoes on camera, but I was wearing a pair of shoes that had a banana peel on them. And uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. They were Andy Warhol banana peel Chuck Taylors, and I no one picked up on it, not even Jordan Peele. So I, I kind of Jordan peeled Peel. <laughs> Like, Do you know who would have appreciated that is Lapita. Right. Lapita loves a good pun. There's an Easter egg in my in my us interviews, and I just revealed it. And I feel <laughs> I feel like I'm I feel like I'm cheating everybody. Endgame reportedly has a runtime of three hours and two minutes. Perfect. Uh, we've been talking Brilliant. about this. Brilliant. Yeah. Any now, beef? It, it, it's going to be the longest superhero movie of all time, beating uh, Dark Knight Rises, which clocked in at I, 245. I have. Uh, I'm starting to get this sense of apprehension. Uh, that the movie will not be able to live up to what I need it to be. I and disagree. For, it's it's going to no be reason, hard to. For no reason whatsoever, beyond just the fact that my expectations are so lofty uh, that, I, that I don't know how it can meet them. Interestingly enough, I, I am as excited about this film as I was about Infinity War. 
Um, okay. I don't think that I'm uh, my my expectations have rised above Infinity War. Infinity War was so, but but I but I also have a lot of faith in the Russos. So I, sure. I I have not seen them deliver a bad film in the MCU. In fact, they've delivered my three favorite films in the MCU. Uh, that being said. A three-hour and two-minute runtime shows confidence that they are taking this film so seriously that they are willing to not cut things just so the studio can be happy about how many runs this movie gets. And I think you are Disney. You're giving your filmmakers the ability. I mean, final cut for a film like that from from those filmmakers, that's a big deal. And they clearly – and remember, and I don't know if I ever told you – I don't know if I've told this on the air before. It's funny. I was telling Jake this the other day. I still have a 10-minute sit-down with the Russos – that oh, yeah. I did that I did in a green room that I didn't ever post. Like there was like I posted like thirty seconds of it. It was right after they came in for Infinity War. But when I was walking through the lobby with Anthony and Joe Russo when they came in for Infinity War, right after it opened, I said to I think it was Joe as Russo, I said, How how are you able to edit and make a scene and a movie flow so well with over dozens of characters and every single scene's important, yet you still emotionally have give everyone an arc and it still works. And I think I told you this before, he called it um, effing frames. Uh, and it's something that they did on, I believe, was it Arrested, Arrested, not Arrested Development. No, right? Arrested community. Development? They did Arrested Development and they did Arrested community. Development. It, it was basically, they, they sit in an edit room and they basically chop the sequence and the frames down to the most minimal moment that they can get every element of the story into that scene perfectly. That way you, I mean, it's basically editing, How much right? time could that possibly save? Big. I, I'm telling you, the, the reason I'm making this point is, if it's three hours and two minutes, it's for a reason. They yep. are famous for chopping off the fat of, of, of sequences. That, and that, well, and think about it. I don't think Infinity War has a dead moment. It, I don't that, think that's what a, I asked. There's not a scene yeah. in that movie where when I get back to it on a rewatch, Agreed. That, the, the only one that's dangerously close to it is when they do a flashback with Thanos and Gamora to when she's little and oh. he's conquered her home and it's still important and he does the whole balance yeah. you know thing with his finger but that's a part where i can be like okay I can, let's get to the action i don't necessarily need a flashback here i understand your bond kind of thing but still, still i think my my concern with endgame isn't that i think it's going to be a bad movie because i because i don't think the russos know how to make a bad superhero movie it's more of a personal thing where i'm concerned that the way it goes down the way the story is resolved is not the way i'm going to want it to have happened you know yeah. it, it, and and it could be like an incredibly well-made movie, well-acted, well-written, well-paced. But if it doesn't go down, like you know, I don't really want Captain Marvel to play a big role in what brings down Thanos because I think that's well, unfair. Because how she comes much of this la- was Last Jedi, right? Like Last yeah, exactly. Jedi didn't meet the expectations of certain fans, and that's Based where I'm a little thought, bit. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the so problem with Last Jedi is Last Jedi was aware of its expectations, and that, and to me, and, and that's a personal opinion. And we discussed this before. I don't think Endgame is going to be aware of our expectations. And going to Jake's point about Captain Marvel, I agree. I, I think Captain Marvel is an important character, but I don't want one singular character to be the to be the reason why Thanos is defeated. I, I, I mean, right. it's got to go back to the original guys, yeah, right? I, I, like it's got to well, be. You got to come full circle. You got to yeah, make the original so. guys. I just I just don't think a character who was just introduced to us three weeks ago in a media should movie. have yeah should have an impact 
on the ending of a story that's been oh, 11 years in the making. There's so much. Okay, so I spoke to Anthony Russo on Friday, and there's so much I want to be able to say to you guys right now, and I'm embargoed until April 2nd. You're not embargoed cannot, from friendship, and we can have that conversation I'm when this is done rolling. Wait, friendship. something just broke, though, before we did the podcast today, which is now giving us an even deeper view into what's going to happen in Endgame. They released these amazing character posters. Oh, yeah. And which so, signify like, some people who are dead that we didn't know they were dead. So Shuri died in the snap. Yeah. Which which was not ever seen on screen, but now for people who aren't Wait, aware Sean, of what, of what we're know? referring to, um, for people who aren't aware of what we're referring to, they released a color poster for the characters who are alive, and a black and white poster, right, essentially for the characters who are Correct. dead, and Correct. Shuri got a dead poster. So yeah. I guess we assume that she was disintegrated. Snap. Yeah, yeah, off but, screen. But, but why? That's interesting to me. Why would you release that in a poster? Because they need us know. to know that information going in. Then why not show her death on in Infinity War? She was a big enough character to, to care about to show. And would that have been overkill? Like, do we really need to cut to every single person that? Well, I think we saw everyone die that was that we needed to see die, right? No, well, we didn't say the, well, I guess the we one last thing the about Shuri that I think is fairly interesting is that she was doing something to Vision to try to get the stone out of his head. Yes. And I still believe that she instead somehow really quickly reverse engineered some some important information into Wakanda's databases. And I think that somewhere in there she's going to have hidden a key piece of information, not necessarily the solution to like how to stop Thanos, but I think that there's some key information she pulled out of the stone and put into the Wakanda database. That's all, my guess. All I'm asking for is I don't want a simplistic rewind. I don't think I, you'll get it. I do not want oh, that's, that's awesome. Cool. I don't want a simplistic Perfectly balanced. time stone rewind that erases and th- this is something that Jake and I I think completely agree on is that it, it's such a cheap way to go out like to to erase the stakes of what that film did and I think and also did you guys see the tweet about and I, I don't can't confirm this Jake if you can pull that picture back up again I think Gamora is the only one looking at you is everyone else looking off camera Jake is gonna retweet if he can a photograph that is what is, is it all the posters so it's together? all the posters actually like it's so funny I just got this email as we were talking about this oh cool so nice. my, is uh, Gamora my the Disney only rep. one looking is at it, the camera that uh, no Nick Fury is also looking at the camera interesting why do you think and we know he's back why do you think some of them are looking at the camera and some of them aren't? Um, I don't know. In the same way that at the on the Avengers poster, why is everyone looking right except Thor? Right. Now, okay. So here's my question. Uh, do we also get an epic Hulk moment in this one? Like, will Hulk, oh, we have will to. Hulk get we his have to. arc? Like, I, I mean, think we have to. Yeah. Because, and now, but he hasn't been shown yet. But it's interesting to me. If you think about Infinity War, right? The starring moment of that film is Thor's entrance into Wakanda, which is arguably the greatest thing that Chris Hemsworth has ever done in the MCU. It is yes. perfect. So who gets that moment here? Do they give it to Downey? It's probably Downey. If it's not Downey, it's it's uh, Chris Evans. Yeah, it's Downey or Cap. But Evans... One of the two. Yeah. but One you, of the two. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you, who do you give that to? Who Or will they all get one? I mean, like, I think they all get one. Uh, will I, we will we get a hero shot? Will we get the famous like Avengers shot like from yes. New York City when when uh you know when Joss had them all circling around and will, will we ever get a line again like I'm always angry? I mean like I'm wondering if are we gonna oh, get... over the course of three hours we better. Well, so let's just say this too, and then we'll move on. We've seen maybe six minutes, right? If that, like, how much footage have we seen? They've hidden this movie, and we're a month away. It's incredible. Yeah. 
I'm, which it, I'm at this point, I'm perfectly fine with. Yes, of course. No more trailers. I'm good. No, it's locked right. though, right? The pictures locked. They're done. They will lock it this week. Wow, that's they insane. will lock it. And they said, and there's still some more special effects things they have to do, but it's it's going to be they're ready. Also, are we 100 percent confirmed? It's three hours and two minutes. Is that still a report? Uh, John, you're you're best on, friends with the Russos. AMC put it on their website, and if I were you, I would believe that answer. Um, I Gabe crossed it out, but I will just uh, want to mention briefly that Kevin's best friend Josh Brolin posted an amazing photograph of himself prepping for Dune. Oh yeah, Dune's gonna be Dune's gonna be so sick. It's gonna be insane. <laughs> Dune listens. How far into the book are you, Jake? Have you still are you still plugging away? Yeah, not very. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of stuff going on. All right, and it's hard it's, reading a book where every other word you have to go into the glossary to figure out what the word means. Yeah, dude, I'm I'm right there with you. It's a tough read. It is a tough. That, read. That's how I felt when I first started watching Game of Thrones years ago. Is like I had to like I had to like find a map and figure out where everyone was. And I, I mean, we what mentioned do you mean this... find a map. It's at the beginning of every episode. No, there's so <laughs> many characters, man. I'm on a second rewatch. And I still don't know who some of these people are. It's like it's crazy. And I know, Sean, you're watching now, and can we just at least mention that you did see The Red Wedding today? I literally, minutes before we recorded this episode, I, I watched The Red Wedding. I'm and, so um, sorry. It's it's It was as horrifying as <laughs> promised. And now, Kevin, imagine going through a watch of Game of Thrones and then having a comment section rip you apart from mispronouncing everyone's name and not understanding how yeah. they fit Daenerys. into the big picture. Daenerys. Whatever. Can someone... <laughs> Please, uh, at one point, actually, Sean's not here yet, so we'll get to this another week, but I want to know why some actors are playing multiple characters in this Game of Thrones world. I, I need okay, to know this. We'll right. get to that DM later. Kev, DM Kevin that answer. Yeah. Uh, so Us uh, opened to $70 million. It is the biggest uh, opening for an original horror film. I believe the second film from Jordan Peele. Everybody who has been listening to this podcast from day one knows that we are huge fans of Jordan Peele and the guys both had uh, Get Out on their top ten list. It didn't quite make mine, but I, I I appreciate it as much as as much as they do. So we were really anticipating us. We have mentioned uh, on the show, or we were talking last week about how it, it was so moving to us, or, or such a, a a shock of a film that after Kevin got a chance to see it, he and I spoke on the phone at about uh, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, just to discuss what had happened. It's the kind of movie where you come out of it you want to discuss. So now we're going to discuss it, and we're going to get into spoiler territory. This next segment is for us to just open the floodgates and talk about us from the perspective of three people who have seen it, talking to people who have also seen it, and want to weigh in. So um, stop listening now if you haven't yet done that. Uh, we'll be back later with Dumbo reactions and a Danny Elfman interview that we yeah. didn't even tease. Good Lord, if you made it this far into the show, we are going to speak to Danny Elfman later on in this episode. But for now, us. And... um. Jake, I want you to take the floor for starters because Kevin unabashedly loves this movie, has seen it three times now? Going for a third time tomorrow night. Going for a third time. And and we I think all three of us agree that it is a movie that uh, demands a rewatch. And Kevin will be the only one to tell us, uh, actually Gabe saw it a second time, but he doesn't speak, that it it's a different movie on a second viewing. But Jake, you have some issues with it. There's... So when we were having this conversation, we were all saying in the text chain uh, that it, we all think it's a great movie, but when you determine that a movie is great, then you start to debate the merits of how much of an all-timer is it going to be, and that's when it really goes under the microscope of scrutiny, right? Like, uh, and, and I made an, a, a, a comparison to like when an NFL player or an MLB player 
uh, is up for the Hall of Fame. Like, there's a lot of great players, but then who's like a Hall of Fame type thing? So we were having the Hall of Fame type discussion for us. Like, is us really one of those movies that's going to stand the test of time? Kevin was comparing it to things like Inception. I forget the other one that you sort of compared it to. Um, but Jake, you when you were going to review it, you were, you were kind of in the four-star range. Are you still, or the more you thought about it, it changed? Four out of five? It. Yeah, four out of five. The same, Which, if, if not a little less, if I'm being that's honest. That's not you. a Hall of Famer no, to me. No, that's not, not. no, by no means uh, is, is it a Hall of Fame horror film in my eyes. Only because the logistics of the ending, the answers are... Um, or lack thinner, thereof. Lack thereof. The answers are, are, are there, but don't hold up to, to scrutiny. And the answers require you to sort of go like, ah, oh, yeah, it's fine. Because if you really start thinking about the structure of what it is that Jordan Peele is telling us that everyone has a clone and that everyone's clone lives in the sewers or these tunnels that are somewhere underneath America. That doesn't, I'm sorry that that logistically doesn't make sense because if everyone has, there, there aren't enough tunnels in America to house a double population of America. The explanation for what this experiment is is never fully explained, other than it is some sort of control experiment. Um, the the uh, whole idea of what people are doing on the surface, their clone is also doing uh, below the ground in the tunnels. I mean, if someone leaves the circus and gets on a plane and goes to New York, as Sean pointed out, what what does their clone do? These are all things that really... They, they were kind of bothering me whenever I left the theater, and now... Five, no, at this point, it would, I have seen it for, it's been a week since I've seen it, seven days. It, it, it's worse. It's like festering in my mind. These questions that I don't really think Jordan Peele has an answer to. And I feel like that's a cop-out. I feel like as an audience, we're expected to go, ah, yeah, you're thinking about it too much. Don't worry about it. And that's not fair to me. I don't think that's right. I think the metaphors are there. I think the performances are strong. My God, he knows how to structure a shot. The humor is great. I dug it as a horror film. But I dug the metaphor more than, than the on-the-surface, no pun intended, the on-the-surface plot. Because the ending, <laughs> strictly speaking to me, does not make sense. Hey, Jake, well, not- do you know uh, how the Terminator in <laughs> T-1000 can like put liquid metal out of his hand into a knife? Like, can you, what's the, how, does that, how does that happen in real life? Apples how's and that, oranges, dude. How's that Apples occurring? Now, you, you, know, you said you no, wanted be- to know the science behind like how... The people no, because below, you're you're not. Um, that this you're, is you're, science fiction. Yeah, but but you're establishing. Uh, I mean, there. I, I, that's different, man. That's apples. Sean, back me up. I'm trying to think of how to how to well, refute. But I'll no, I'll say this. I'll say this. Um, the pitch for the Terminator doesn't hinge on whether he can turn his hand into a, a knife or not. Like uh-huh. it's a power that the Terminator has. But how? But how and, is he doing it? Like when uh, James Cameron doesn't explain to us that a that how scientifically. A person can transform into another person, turn their arms into knives. We're not ever given that answer. Correct. But here's where I think Jake and I disconnect from from your take on us. Jordan's entire story is that there is a program Mm -hmm. um, with these clones Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have the the he doesn't fill in enough of the the gaps to say not even who did it? Like my, my first question is who did it? Cause I would like to know that. And someone says it's like a government experiment and even that's fine. I think that's okay. But I think the idea of the clone program, which to me is integral to the success of us 
uh, raises a lot of questions that he chooses not to answer. And again, that's his prerogative. He's more interested in what the existence of the clones says about us as a society. He wants to talk about, you know, where you're raised and the, the circumstances under which you're raised. And can you take yourself out of that situation and be put in a... I get it. He, he's more into the bigger picture metaphor. But I, I, like Jake, also do get tripped up on the details that come with the story that he has conceived and he has to be able if he conceived a story of there's a clone program that exists in the tunnels beneath our country he has to be ready to answer some of the questions that come up from that scrutiny mm -hmm. to the point to the point where he even has a scene where he shows he goes so far as to show you that if people ride a roller coaster the clones don't ride a roller coaster but they mimic that they do, right? right. So he's at least showing you There's that they're, they're mimicking answer, your thing. No, so that's if, not my plan answer. Yes, because if someone gets on a plane, then where do they go? Where if, where if they, they, go if they just they just move, they, they they literally mimic the movement of getting on an airplane, and they don't go anywhere physically. They just how, stay how in you, that. What do you mean they don't go? Same thing as a roller coaster. Because, like when they when you show them on the roller coaster, they're just moving in a way a roller coaster moves. They're yeah, not but whenever everyone else was like when when the dad was walking from one side of the park to the other. It showed the dad walking from the, the, That's the fine. other dad. Okay, but what happens when he leaves the freaking park? He just continues walking underneath. Where? There's no well, way. There's not no, that many times. No, you're 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 getting you're because, okay, you're getting you know, stuck on I, the logistics I get that this is of the like space. Sort of science fiction, but it has, it has to exist in the same worlds of the, the rules of the world. I mean, you were talking about T1000. If if you know, I I will accept because of the, because of the film because of the nature of the film, I will accept that he can turn his his arm into a sword. What okay. I can't accept is that he could kill someone in Atlanta and then twenty minutes later kill someone in in Nashville. That logistically doesn't make sense. You have to you can that basically have happens at the end of Watchmen. You accepted that whole death sequence where he, everyone dies in different cities. I mean, how do you explain that death sequence at the end of Watchmen when everyone dies? When like when they they, they they knock off like multiple hundreds and thousands of people at the end of Watchmen, how do you explain that theoretically speaking? I don't understand. The, I don't get the connection that you're. Yeah, you making. you just because you, you made a good point a point just now about you can't accept somebody killing someone in Atlanta and then being over there wherever they were going to be after that. My point is, how do you scientifically explain the ending of Watchmen when when hundreds of thousands of millions of people die at the end of that film? How do you explain their death? Scientifically, I forget how they died. I, I know the I know the graphic novels the squid. And it's in New York. Yeah. I, forget I forget how they, how they do it in the movie. I forget how they do it in the movie. I'm talking about... Doesn't, Dr. Manhattan is doing but you still something. Have to... I think he has some kind of a plot. I mean, how do you explain that, though? You don't know you how that happens. Like, your, your fantasy elements still have to exist under the rules of the real world. And and us does they not. They do? Yes. Science fiction is not real life, man. Like, like, like Star Wars does not really exist. There's no TIE Fighters and, and Jabba ex... the Huts. And, 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 you know, that doesn't exist, man. There's not. That's not well, there. Wait. So you went back a second time and watched it. And I want to ask a yeah. question. Do Do they explain why there's the escalator down from the funhouse? No. But why do we need that escalator explanation? I, I don't understand why that's such a like like this is this is literally trying to ask Christopher Nolan if it's there's a dream at the end of Inception. It's I the think, exact again, same question. I think question. that's apples. That you're doing. No, it's these not apples and all. Yeah, because the dream is the entire plot. Of the movie, have, <laughs> did you ever get an explanation as to one how they actually dr drop down to six levels? Obviously, you see machines. How are they doing it? And also, Christopher Nolan never tells you if the movie was a dream, and the entire film is about dreams. You never get the answer. But I'll tell you that Inception's flawed for that reason. That I think Inception's great. flawed for that. But reason. But Jake doesn't think it's flawed for that reason. So that's why I'm confused as to why Jake is is a la is 
willing to accept the ending of Inception, but not willing to accept the ending of Us. That's what I want to know. Explain that me, to me. Are are the are some of those answers there on a second watch, Kevin? In what? Give me give me the question you're asking. Like for example, the escalator going down. I I don't know the answers. But, to but why okay, you keep going down. back to this Inception thing, and and to me, the same thing. The, the, the whether or not it's a dream. It has nothing to do with the logistics. Yes, it does. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's, it has a, to do it's, with a, the... it's a story element. The it's, dream it's... is the entire point of the movie. Did he or did he not get back to his kids? Okay, that is the entire arc of the here's story. The deal. Is it there? There, it's it. It either is or it isn't. It's that. That's a story element. It either it either is a dream or isn't a dream. Okay. The, the element of what happens to these clones if I get on a plane and go to New York. That, that there is no answer to that. They don't fly to New York. They just they oh, just mimic. They, where do they the, go then? Uh, they they stay in that exact area down so, there, and they, and so, they mimic. Okay, they don't all right, all right. Go to no, New York so they're City. only clones okay. of the people that are in that park. Yeah, I do. I do not think that they've actually that makes no traveled sense to New like, York. What if someone's visiting from out of town and they happen to be at that park, and their clone just happens to be underneath that park? That makes that makes no sense. No, dude. no, no. Wait, hold on, hold on. There cannot be only the clones of the people that are in the park because by the end of the movie, right. there's an entire right. line of people across the country. Right, right. and there aren't enough tunnels. And the whole so, the emphasis of the of the realistically is, is brought out at the beginning of the film. So realistically, there have to be other portals into other areas underground. Where there are other clones of everybody, everyone has a clone, and they can that, all. This is my takeaway like, from stitch us: stitch red jumpsuits, apparently, very well. And Dude, I see now you're getting and, like you're getting super no, persnickety. No, 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 I'm, I'm joking about, about that. How <laughs> is that? But let's go back. Let's to, no, 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 no. Well, let's talk about let's talk about a ship going into light speed. How is that physically possible? Tell me how that no, works. Okay, that's fair. come on, that's man. That's, that's, like, that's too persnickety. Okay, but but you, you do understand that there aren't enough tunnels. Underneath the continental United States. Do you know that for sure? Do you know that yes. for well, sure? Yes, doesn't do. the title card? Doesn't the title card say? <laughs> no. Okay, but listen. You are one hundred percent certain that there's not enough space under the ground to house that many people. You're one hundred percent certain on that. Here's here's okay. okay wait here yes. okay. here's hold on. Here's where I understand what Kevin is saying with science fiction, and that's where Jordan, to me, in a certain extent, in the title cards at the opening bit of the movie. If he wants to tell me that there are enough tunnels underneath the the continental United States that this clone problem could potentially happen, I never heard that before in my life. But when I read that title card, I thought, okay. And you buy into the story. He's setting that up for you. So I bought into that as part of the rules of the universe that he's establishing, right? But I think in addition, in the rules that he's establishing... He has to hold himself up to other scrutiny so that when somebody says, why do you even have a funhouse that someone could get into it and and be reversed? Like, why do you even have that ability for them to be reversed? And his answer is just, No, they, they explain that. If you go back to the chalkboard sequence, Lupita's character talks about God brought us together. Something flawed happened in the system of the clones. I was able to somehow figure out a way to get out here and up to the top. And the idea there, meaning a religious meaning for the idea of Jeremiah 11.11, the whole concept of the film is based in this idea that God brought these characters together. So the entire concept was the hands across America. We are here. See, the... Uh, we have to See, get. In. If there's an answer for that, then that's fine. I, th- I can go with that's that. My that's my thought fine. on it. But we, before we break down all of these things that Jake and I disagree with, can we can we at least talk about the overall scope of what was happening with the twist 
and the themes and hands across America and privilege. 100%. There's so many yes. things to dive into here. And then, then we'll circle back to the, to the scientific breakdown of how light speed works in star Wars and things like that. We can get back to that. There really is because it's worth noting that for a filmmaker who's delivering his second film, Jordan has incredible control over the big picture of how his film is viewed. And Kevin has a lot of this from his conversation with the cast. And this truly is spectacular. The, the different ways that Lupita is acting um, in, in playing essentially three characters. Mm -hmm. And that's why this film requires such a, a, a rewatch because you can just stare at her the entire time. And what's the other, Oh, it's a, what's her face from get out Allison Williams, Williams, right? Yeah. That you can watch her on a repeat get out uh, screening and her performance is completely different. Yet it's the same movie that you watched. Right. The movie hasn't changed, but you've changed. And Jordan is able has been able to do that now twice. And that is pretty remarkable. Well, Jordan has made two films in one. So, like, the second viewing of Us is completely different from the first viewing. Just like Get Out was in the sense of when you follow Allison's character, as you mentioned. Um, the third character you're referring to about Lupita, uh, if we're revealing the twist now, obviously we sure. know that Lupita's doppelganger switched out the Lupita from above, brought her down, and the doppelganger went up to live in the real world. She couldn't speak. Um, she had to learn to adapt to pop culture, learn emotions, learn, you know, love, whatever, whatever human soul aspects of her character she had to learn. That's what, that's the arc of that character. But you go back to Hands Across America, that's where it gets super fascinating. And I saw Jordan talk about this in an interview. Hands Across America, from what I understand, because I, I don't remember it, uh, I, I researched it now that I've seen the film, was a well-intentioned event right the idea of the event was to help with hunger i believe homelessness as well um, homelessness was the big right. thing yeah so the idea was you hold hands across america and you're sending a message that we care about you from what i understand and from what i've gathered in research and research and, and through interviews is that while it was well-intentioned it didn't really do much in the sense of like did it really change a lot for those people it might have sure. changed some lives but it kind of made people feel good about themselves for doing the Hands Across America. But what did it really do for hunger sure. and homelessness? So you go back to the beginning of the film. The character's wearing a Hands Across America shirt when she gets down there. And then you go to the full scope of the arc of the movie where she actually gets to do a real Hands Across America and actually cause real change. Now, metaphorically untethering people with scissors that are two heads on one body and cutting and killing their uh, people above earth and sending a message that we are here and the idea of privilege and the things we take for granted if you go back to a lot of the sequences in the film where winston duke's doppelganger takes the glasses off of the real winston duke puts them on his face that guy has never seen clearly before uh we take glass i take my, i put my glasses on every morning i don't even think about it i don't even think about how lucky i am to have a pair of glasses um now because of this movie my day, my daily life is different, and I, I know that sounds crazy. But when I put my glasses on in the morning, I think about us, and I think about the little things in our lives that we take for granted, the little detail. That's why Elizabeth Moss is putting on that lipstick the way she is in the film. I mean, there are so many intricacies, and that's why I get frustrated because, I, and I understand where Jake's coming from, and I love Jake, but like. Those are things, in my opinion, the, 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 the nitpicky little details of science fiction that I wish you, I wish your mind was not focused on that as much and more on these but, incredible but see, 
commentaries. On, like, the, like you and I have, have been geeking out uh, via text about like the metaphors and the deeper themes and what different. Like that, that, I'm 100% with you on that. I think our split comes to a, a matter of forgiveness. I, I cannot forgive building to a twist that, when put under scrutiny, doesn't in my eyes, makes sense. And I think it's because so much of the film relies, it builds toward that. I would have rather no answer at all as to where the doppelgangers came from as opposed to what I think is kind of a half-ass answer. That doesn't make any sense, though, but if they gave you no answer, you'd still be questioning it. Yeah, but... The only thing they say in the movie is that there was a government experiment that created two, two bodies... Connected to one soul. Now, if they didn't, I, I, if they didn't give you that history line, history, man. so so you would rather have had not that sentence. I, I and would have rather happier? just had these doppelgangers show up, and we don't know where they came from. And to me, and and then have our imaginations, the wheels start turning. I, I can see I'll, that. I'll admit it's more frustrating to be given a suggestion of an yes, answer that yes. doesn't hold up to scrutiny because I, I to, to me, and that's why I deeply admire when a script is airtight. That when you bring up anything about it, you can say, oh, well, there's the answer. But and you, I think most of Nolan's um, screenplays do ho- uh, offer those answers. Do you have and the I, answer to Inception? That's different. No, no. that's no. why you keep I going to that. I go to that because you are forgiving that ending without explanation. No, I'm not. No, no, no because that's not something about the film that doesn't make sense. That's just yes, it is. you deciding... Whether the last events were a dream or you deciding whether they happen in reality, but it, but, it, but it's not a, a foundational problem in the plot. Here's what here's here's what I find fascinating. Sean agrees that Inception is flawed because it's not explained. Jake, but thinks but, it, wait, 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 Jake is uh, does not like the ending of Us or doesn't love the ending of Us because it's not explained perfectly, but. Yet you forgive the ending of Inception. So my point is that Sean you're, you're agrees. Talking, that, that is a, there's a difference between unanswered and not making sense. Inception, the questions are not answered. Inception, or I'm sorry, Inception, they, they, it's not answered. Us just flat out doesn't make sense. But Those you're, are two completely but different things. You're trying to make sense of science fiction. and you're ta- and, and, Science uh, fiction uh, can make sense. Look, Gabe, uh, will you break this tie? Get in here and break the tie. Yeah, I think Gabe Gates should finally Kevin, speak on this. Now, I'd rather him speak whenever he agrees with me. Let me, this is the chance. Let me, this is your chance. Let me say one more thing that is fascinating. Um, and Because I do want to take a deeper dive with you guys. But there's... On the second viewing, it's truly remarkable watching Lupita perform. Um, I'm sure. And so, remember, the third character we're referring to that Lupita plays is Lupita's doppelganger is playing the character of the real Lupita above, right? So you're dealing with somebody who's trying to be a human being that's why lupita sounds the way she does that's why she over enunciates every single word she says think about the way she says things stick with me and you'll be safe i mean no one no one talks like that it's like it's like as if she's trying to fit in in every scenario of her life think about the scene in the car with i got five on it she's completely offbeat with her with her with her tapping, right? In the on the surface level of that scene, it's a mom trying to be cool and fit in with her kids. But look at that scene closely. The daughter knows the song. The husband knows the song. Lupita should know that song, and she may have heard it before, but she doesn't know the song. She doesn't know the significance of the song, in my opinion. She's offbeat. And then you go to the Home Alone sequence. No one says micro-machines. No one says... 
Did you? Can you remind me what that is? What is she talking about? What do you mean? What I no, I remember she said it, but what's the context? Winston Duke makes a joke about Home Alone, and because when they're in the Elizabeth Moss's house, and uh, she goes, "You did not just reference Home Alone," and then she makes a joke about the micro machines that Macaulay Culkin puts out on the floor. No one oh, says traps, mi- right? No the one traps. says that. So the okay. b- the point being is that she is constantly trying to fit in, constantly. And and in my opinion, personally, um, and then you and then you go back to the way you view the film, right? Why does she get out of that car to go in the woods and help uh, the the doppelganger daughter? Right, because when you think that it's, she's the Lupita, you think that like, that would be the would last thing she would right. do. Yeah, every no, I get that. Okay, scene is, is, is there's a duality to every scene. It's awesome. Let me ask you a why for her character. Okay, if you were an escaped clone mm. who has established your new life. On, on the surface, uh-huh. you have a husband and kids. Would you ever go back to the beach where the funhouse? She is? didn't want to. That was they went there because Winston's character wanted to go there. Under How do you explain no that? No circumstances would you go anywhere See, near that beach ever again. That's persnickety. Like you're talking it's about. Not. She's from that area. <laughs> Winston's from that area. Winston's character wants to go to the beach with his kids. She even says, "I don't want to go." numerous times and she's she freaked out about moved to it. Australia. She shouldn't have stayed in that area. She should have gotten Dude, the hell out of there. First of all, she has no idea who she is. You, you you get up there, you haven't spoken a word in your entire life. You have been literally mimicking. You you don't even know what you are. You don't even know you're a doppelganger. Like imagine running into yourself, choking yourself out and bringing yourself down there and then learning what the reality of the situation is. Okay, but not, and I'm not going to nitpick, I swear to you, but she's lived enough of a life that she met a man and married him. Yeah. And and they had kids together. So she's been a person for decades. 33 years, right. De- which is also a, uh, what, are, what are those? What palindrome. Are, uh, palindrome. It's also a palindrome. 33 years. That's sick. I think Jordan Peele is a filmmaker who is overly concerned with the cool details like that. And he's a genius when it comes to that stuff. Like, when you tell me there's 33 years between, and that's a palindrome also, and 11-11, and everything's a palindrome, I think he's a brilliant filmmaker in that aspect. But I do think there's an element, I think Jake is correct, that when you step back and look at the big picture and say, cool story, bro, but what about this? That he's quick to be like, uh, the what now? And and kind of just, you know, he'd rather you talk about the metaphors and not ask you the guys, big picture question. And there Actually, is a difference between what is unanswered and what doesn't make sense. Inception you, is unanswered. Us doesn't make sense. Do you guys genuinely believe that Jordan Peele doesn't have an answer to all these questions? I, if I, he does, I, I, then I he fails as a filmmaker because he didn't put it in there. No. Why does he fail as a filmmaker he didn't put it in there? You didn't catch it the first time. I'm still catching Can stuff. Can you answer any of the questions that I have? I've seen, seen it twice. You've seen it twice? Yeah, what, what, the what answers question? aren't there, dude. Give me the, the answers give, aren't there. Give me the question. Give me the question. What uh, happens? Okay. To someone. Uh huh. When they are, <laughs> Gabe is going nuts. Tell, Gabe uh, is Jake, going nuts. How does light speed work? <laughs> Tell me how light speed works. I want to know. How did Solar get his name? Scientific breakdown of how the buildings fold in Inception. Tell me how that works. How do the cars still drive upside down? But they're not That's the a plot. Dream. It, yes. No, I'm telling you guys. You're 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 you're. I need right. Gabe to get if, in here because Gabe's seen Gabe, it twice. Well, here, here's what Gabe says. Le- legitimately, he says, tease that maybe this is worth dedicating a bonus episode to. Ask the audience to hit us up on Twitter if that sounds like a good idea. 
and maybe we'll come back for some more us conversation. Yeah, I want so, to know okay. what game Gabe lies, lies, lies though. If 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 you didn't know what hyperspeed was in Star Wars, mm-hmm. and then you it. got to the end of Star Wars, and the answer to the end of the movie was hyperspeed, mm-hmm. and then it went to black. Yeah. And without explaining what hyperspeed was, right? you'd be like, "What the hell." That makes no sense. Right, but I don't need to know what hyperspeed is or how if it's it, achieved. If it's the answer to every question... It's not the answer Gabe, how many question. stars do you give this movie? Gabe, hold up your hands. How many stars out of five do you give this movie? While you're doing that, we're going to move on to this week in movies. But, wait, but before we move on, can I say one more thing? Um, of course. We all love this movie. Five! Yeah, Gabe gives course. it five. He we put do, five we on do it. love it. To, we do love it. To clarify, Sean, put five and, on it. Sean and Jake... Have only seen the movie once. Gabe, yes or no, the second viewing is a completely rewarding experience. It is a Gabe, it yes is or no, a game-changing the, the experience. Second, the second viewing is going to answer my questions and my concerns. They're still there. They're but not dude, answered. No, but, but you know what? This goes back to our conversation we were having on text today. He's I'll keep this you. under two minutes. We were having a dis- <laughs> yeah, right. No, I'm being serious. <laughs> we were having a discussion on text today about the Red Wedding. And I made a point that I thought The Red Wedding was extremely overly violent in a particular moment with Rob's wife. That's all I will say. And my point was that death, the way it was done in the show, was not as gruesomely done as it was in the book. That show is horrific, goes way over the top, and always is shocking. But that can't be be your bar. But it finds... A way where it works within the realm of the show, no pun intended. But the idea is that I thought, I personally, that they crossed the line when yes. they went into that death sequence and how they shot it with and the stomach. And that's a very fair so, summation. That's my personal opinion. But then Jake said, well, the writers can't take into account your personal feelings about a line being crossed. So Jake's personal feeling about us is that he did not get every answer he was looking for. But Jordan Peele wasn't writing this film for Jake Hamilton. He was writing it for a wider audience. You just of did, course. You, you just did not like the way he explained something. That does not mean it's flawed. Well, yeah, that's, that's what a review is. But that, but that's, right, that's no, his no, opinion. You're calling it a flaw. It's an opinion. It's not, well, it is my opinion that it is flawed. So it's my opinion. So, th- so then why argue with me that I have an opinion that the Game of Thrones episode... Because that's what we do on this podcast. Right. But Jake, you did go yes. there and you did say the Game of Thrones writers weren't thinking about you, Kevin. Well, Think about that line. You, you in the sense that they can't take into account what's going to be disturbing for the viewer. They have to do what, oh. make the char- what makes sense for the characters. One thing we have to add, mention before we go, before we move on. Is the is the sun switched? I keep seeing this theory. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand so. that. I don't get it. When would he have been switched? And the other kid's face was burned. But so how could he be switched? The, the theories I'm reading on that are that he was switched years ago, prior to them going back to the beach, at, at another time when they were there. But th- that theory has actually become a gigantic thing. It's like, it's not just, I've seen it. I don't, yeah, I don't I've understand seen people referencing that. Did so you've seen it twice. Did you ever think at any point that the boy no. was switched to? Well, think about. So I was thinking about this today. Think of what happens. What's in the What's the last shot? Think what's the last shot? All everyone holding the... hands across the countryside. Well, before that, I'm sorry. In the ambulance, he puts his mask back on, doesn't he? he looks at his mom strangely and then puts his mask back. Right. On. And what's the implication when he looks at his mom and, and kind of smirks? That he knows that she's the clone. Correct. So, but look at everybody else in that car. 
You know, and so this goes back to the ambulance. The ambulance means something. I haven't figured this out yet. And I'm wondering if Gabe has. If you watch the movie closely, how often do they open that door and prop an ambulance into the door to keep the door from closing? At least two times, if not three. Very vividly, they do that to a point yeah, where it becomes clear. a big part of the movie. Something's up with that ambulance in the sense of also why is the son the only one who's able to control his clone the way he is? He why yeah. what, what what does the son do to his clone? Right? I don't know. He backs, yeah, he I don't know. backs him into the fire. Yeah, right, right, right. So yeah, there, yeah, there's something yeah. going on there that I have yet to, and I'm curious if Gabe's even... But he has such a visible scar no, on his face yeah. that he can't... I don't, know. I don't know. I'm not sure. If only we could get Jordan Peele on this show. <laughs> if only we had a producer that could capably book guests. <laughs> I just threw... I threw Gabe underneath the ambulance wheels. Uh, this week in movies, have either of you guys seen The Beach Bum? No. Kevin? There's a beach in us. I didn't... Oh, oh, by the way, did you guys see that that mind-blowing uh, BuzzFeed <laughs> article about us? Oh, no. no this is not, it's not a joke. Do you know the... Do you, did you see the story? So the two twins... Elizabeth, oh, yeah. They're... They, yeah, I know. I Elizabeth Moss's yeah. daughters are the girls who played Ross and Rachel's daughter in Friends as a baby those are the really? same girls like they no, I didn't know that it, I didn't know that either someone whoever at BuzzFeed figured that out brilliant work Wait, on your part are they the daughters the twin daughters in the movie no so, so yes so oh. Ross and Rachel had a baby in Friends yes. that one singular baby was played by two actors who were really twins in real life those sure. two twins are the daughters in the movie in us no kidding yeah really yeah, I did not know. That. That, I mean, that—that's another whole level of Jordan Peele, like oh dropping, dropping stuff. <laughs> Come on, that it's was... all a, it's all a friends analogy. I mean, that... <laughs> now it makes sense. Yes, finally, it it's takes clear. place in the Friends universe. Now it makes sense in the same universe where unemployed twenty-year-olds can live in a massive apartment in New York right. City. Oh, that, that Kevin, I'm gonna say he copped out a bit when you asked him specifically if. Uh, us takes place in the Get Out universe. That's why I was a bit confused as to why he couldn't answer that. Because now that we've all seen Us, knowing that Us gets exists in the Get Out universe is not a spoiler. So no. I and I asked Jordan Peele because he told me at Get Out that my next film I'm probably going to weave in my universe in my next movie. Those were his exact words. And it was yeah. uh, it was a great call on your part to follow yeah. up on that. And you showed the clip and he he weaseled out of it. And he said I cannot confirm or deny. That only leads me to believe... I mean, guys, we haven't even gotten into what the ending shot of the movie means. What are the helicopters there for? They're news helicopters. I, I think other chaos happening around the... Because you see smoke coming from different places, and I think I think just the other clones coming out of their other portals, like other fun houses. Yeah, I assumed it was, they were like news helicopters that were recording everything. Also, is yeah. it every person in the world... Who has a clone in the America? Or is it well, just, these are or questions it, I wanted the movie people? to answer. No, I mean, but 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 that's a great thing. Look at the conversation we're having right now. What is other, there one in it's Europe? A, it's a conversation birthed out of frustration. Are there European clones? No, I think it's or a, Chinese clones. It's America, I think. Oh, it's an America thing. You might be right. I, I wish, wish Kevin's clone could better explain the ending. But why do you need? Like that's <laughs> the thing. Why you don't need to know this, Jake? You don't need to know it. I do. That's the beauty of this. Con- Look at this do. conversation we're having right now. Kevin's yeah, clone loves Whataburger. Is what the problem? Yes, is. I, I like Kevin's clone better. <laughs> you <laughs> and Jake. All by right. the way, I do want to say I do love and respect you, and Dude, I, I, I I jokingly lash out and have fun with you. I respect your opinion. I actually completely understand where you're coming from as a what about viewer, and I respect. I? I completely respect you less so, your. Sean. 
opinion. Why am I even in this? Book? But my point is, is that I just Let's agree. Go back to Game of Thrones. And I fight, but I but I love. I fight with this love. Is, this is this is what we do. Now, what I'm gonna have to All do right. is silence my phone because for the rest of the day, I'm gonna be getting text messages from Kevin telling me how much he loves oh. me. And that he respects my opinion. Can that you, is a I testament to how good of a person Kevin McCarthy is. I will McCarthy distract is. him with the Red Wedding Jake, conversation. Jake, can you do me a favor <laughs> and go see us again before next I'm week's going podcast? To. I'm going to. I, right. I need your thoughts on a second viewing because I think Gabe will attest to this. It's a game changer. But right. and, and, and I get it. I get that it's a game changer, but it's not going to solve my issues with it. Okay. I think it's actually a Gabe changer. <laughs> Gabe has given up. <laughs> On this episode, <laughs> I, I actually hate myself for saying that. Look, that look at Gabe's face. I wish you at home <laughs> could beautiful. see Gabe's. It is a look of defeat. It is a yes. look of a man who has given up on life. There's so much more to get to. Uh, who Jake wonders and I are what seeing life choices he's made to get Dumbo to this point? Shortly after recording this, so we will hold off on our reaction to this. But before we go any further and get to the blend game, we have a very special interview with composer. Danny Elfman, who did some work on Dumbo and has worked with Tim Burton over the years and several other brilliant um, directors. And so here is our exclusive interview with composer Danny Elfman. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mr. Elfman. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm just going to kind of start off, you know, you've been obviously composing films, so many films for so many years. And I was looking back to think about your relationship with Tim Burton. And I know that the process obviously has probably changed a bit over the years. But when you worked with him on Pee Wee Herman to now to Dumbo, what how how much has that process changed? Well, I mean, it's changed a lot. When I worked with him on Pee Wee Herman, he was like a kid. <laughs> he was like this fresh kid, uh, you know, doing his first feature movie. And uh, so it was very much like just working with this kind of new, goofy, weird kid. So between then and now, now he's very confident and he knows exactly what he wants. And I mean, look, uh, I was also pretty fresh at that time. So we were like two geeky kids going off on a journey together in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. His first feature, my first film score. And, um, you know, not having any idea where it would lead. And, you know, now he's a veteran filmmaker and God knows I've written over 100 film scores. So, uh, you know, it's just a different dynamic. But on the other hand, it's still kind of the same. He uh, he really doesn't talk or analyze the movies uh, at all. Um, He doesn't deconstruct them ever. Um, He didn't then, and he doesn't do that any more now than he did then. He really, he really goes a hundred percent, just like a visceral reaction. So, I mean, we'll watch the movie. He'll tell me how he feels about it. And then it's for me to come in with music and he doesn't have any really, uh, additional things to say until I play him music. And then once I play him music, now he can respond. That's one thing I, w- I was very curious about is the process of composers writing music when they do it. And I know um, some composers will start writing it based on a script. Some composers will start writing it based on clips or dailies that they're watching. Um, from what you just said, it sounds like you watch the film with Burton and then come up with the music at that point. Um, if that's not correct, I'm curious going back to like 
any film you've done with him in the past, Edward Scissorhands, whatever scores you've worked on him with over the years, um, have you has that always been the same way? Do you always watch the film, then do the music, or do you start writing themes based on ideas and story tale, story ideas he has? Well, <clears throat> let me put it this way. I mean, certainly didn't on Pee Wee because I didn't ever right. know it existed until the movie was made. But um, on Beetlejuice, on my second film with Tim, I had some time beforehand and I read the script and I decided to write some music. Cool. Um, and then a couple months later, I go in to look at a rough cut of the film with Tim. And I knew as I was watching that rough cut that not one second of what I'd written was going to make it in the movie. And, I didn't. <laughs> uh, and that's because when you're reading a script, you're imagining something. And when mm. you see a movie, very frequently, between a performance, between the lighting, between the camera work, between the sets and everything else, it, it's a different thing. It's just not the same. And so I started doing the opposite after that. Um, the best way I can describe it is the, the place I like to be when I'm seeing a movie for the first time is like the TV screen in the beginning of Poltergeist. Uh, just white noise, static, nothing. Um, I really don't want to carry any pre-thought ideas into that moment because my best ideas are going to happen right there, right when I'm like doing it. And I want to try to keep my mind as open as possible to what starts to play in my head when I'm seeing it for the very first time. And those first impulses are critical for me. Um, you know, I wouldn't say my first idea always becomes the theme or makes it into the movie, but uh, more often than not, it becomes uh, something that I really go back to and, and work on. The, my first reactions become like a critical part of my process. Dumbo was a, uh, an anomaly for me. Um, and it's something I've never really successfully done on any of Tim's movies. Uh, I got the call about working on it and I was like, really Dumbo? What does Dumbo mean? It's like this baby elephant being parted from his mother. That's sad. And as I was walking back from the phone call, I actually started hearing a piece of music in my head. Now, I didn't know if this would be Dumbo music, but the one thing I do know about myself is anytime I hear a piece of music that I like in my head, if I don't write it down, I'll kill myself later because, uh, you know, the ones you lose are your best ideas, of course. You know, it's the big fish thing, right? Uh, not referring to Tim's big fish, but the idea, the one that got away will always in your imagination be your best idea. So I put it away in a folder and I didn't listen to it again for a year. Now I'm ready to start working on Dumbo and I have a first rough cut and I'm talking with Tim and I pulled it out and I get, you know, this, this actually, I still like this. Um, and it did become Dumbo's theme. So it was odd that I in fact wrote Dumbo's theme a year before I saw the movie, but that's different than every other film of Tim's that I've done. It's fascinating to me because, like, I, I saw the film and I was blown away by how beautiful and lifelike the music was. Because you talk about the the sadness of the storyline and obviously Dumbo being separated from his mother, but this movie really kind of comes down to a joyful experience in regards to you know as it comes full circle. But you know, your music really and and this is something I tell I say a lot and I truly mean it. I think 
um, scores, in my opinion, are the leading characters of all movies because without a score or without music, um, music can change the tone of every single scene. And one of the things that you just said, which I found fascinating, is you wrote some music prior to Beetlejuice that didn't end up being used in the movie. And that was actually my next question for you was, have you ever written a piece of music for a film that didn't get used and then you used for a different movie later? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, anytime I, like I said, anytime I write a theme, uh, I store it away because, because of that. It's like, I don't know what this is, but I really like this. And like a really good example is I was doing a Dick Tracy with uh, Warren Beatty. Yeah. And there was a scene in this graveyard uh, and I wrote a piece of music and he wasn't crazy about it. But while I'm watching him kind of talk about it, I'm thinking, I don't want to use this piece of music in this scene. Because I really like it. And, and I can hear where I find a theme or a piece of music that I could do a lot of variations on. I, I, I know that I could do a lot with it. Uh, and so while he's kind of saying, oh, I'm not sure, I immediately started talking him out of it. <laughs> say, you know what? You really don't want this piece. I agree with you. This is not working. And I purposely geared him away from that music and wrote a new piece of music because I said, I don't want to do this once in the movie. This huh. is a, this is a, and the, one of the next movies I got was Dark Man with Sam Raimi. And that was the first graveyard piece I wrote for Dick Are Tracy. Are you serious? Became the whole That's theme. amazing. Yeah. It's like, because I could already tell that once isn't going to satisfy me with this one. That wow. this is a piece I, I love. My favorite thing in scoring is doing variations on themes, taking a theme and doing lots and lots of variations of really twisting and turning it. And um, I could tell on that one that, oh, I, I could really have fun with this theme. And in this movie, it'll be once for a minute and a half, and then that's it. It'll be gone. So I did stash it away, and it came back. Um, mm. I think the difference between Beetlejuice and Dumbo was that when I wrote for Beetlejuice, I was writing for an imagined movie in my head, reading the script, which didn't exist. Mm. And when I saw Michael Keaton... And the sets and the whole feel of what it was, it was just very different than what I had in my head. Uh, with Dumbo, I was writing more from just the emotion of this kind of sad, lost creature. And uh, because of that, I think it had more of a chance in sustaining. Because then when I saw the movie, I was seeing the sad, lost creature being taken away from his mother. Now, yeah. then I had to do a lot of work to figure, okay, I know it'll do that, but will it do everything else it needs to do? And that's where I put it into the laboratory. And I do this with every theme I write. I go, can I take, I'll go, this, in this movie, the theme needs to do this, this, and this. It needs to be frivolous, or it needs to be romantic, or it needs to be joyous, or it needs to be quirky, or it needs to be silly. And in Dumbo, clearly it needed to get triumphant and joyous. So the first thing I did was, Will it do that? Because I don't want to find out halfway through the movie that it won't. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've learned that lesson, too. It's like, I got to know, if nothing else, that where all my themes are and that they'll do what I'm going to ask them to do at the end of the movie. Because there's nothing worse than being stuck in a finale of a film and you've got a theme that just doesn't want to go there and you're trying to force it. Uh, so there I put a lot of work into this theme that came earlier into how can I express it in a big, joyous way? How can it play soaring? Because Tim talked a lot about 
the music of the soaring Dumbo in the air, and how can I play Triumphant that he saves the day with? And then when I'd done all that stuff and played it for Tim, that's where, okay, this is starting to work for me. Now I'm into this theme. And, you know, he slowly, he, he never hears something and he goes, that's it, right there, it's done. Hmm. Um, it's a process for him. And uh, he just slowly got pulled into, that's the theme, that's, that's it. It took a little while, but at a certain point when I think he saw the first footage of Dumbo flying, even though it was a very rough footage and against the music, he goes, yeah, that, that's it, that's it. Wow, that's amazing. So it's still a process, but it was just a weird one for me because here I had this file stashed away that I hadn't any idea what it was anymore because I'd, you know, I'd done two movies or three probably since I'd, you know, written it. Wow. You know, uh, Mr. Elfman, one of the things that I find so fascinating about um, your story, I mean, by the way, I saw the film the other day and I was telling Tim Burton this yesterday because I actually spent a lot of time in my, t I've interviewed Tim Burton a few times over the years and I spent a lot of time talking about you <laughs> because I'm so uh, blown away by your music. But one of the cool things I thought he did in the film was the, the POV shots of Dumbo from his perspective and he blurred out the left and right side of the screen. That was really cool how he pulled that off. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, and, and this is something I'm sure you've been asked this before and, I, and, and forgive me for not knowing the, the full story on this because Nightmare Before Christmas is one of my favorite movies of all time and I know you do the singing voice for Jack. I was always curious, um, were you ever going to do the speaking voice as well? Was that ever a, a talked about? Yeah, it was, but um, I, I had uh, a lot of disagreements with uh, Henry over that and you know eventually they just wanted to go in another direction and um you know my first approach to jack is that he would speak in a much more kind of uh schizophrenic excitable way like he sang because all the songs hmm. were written before his first line of dialogue you know and and recorded you know we actually recorded all all 10 of the songs before there was a script oh wow um and it's a funny story but at a certain point uh I was like, you know what? That's fine. It's like I, I got. I'm, I am the singing voice, and I'm happy with that because he actually sings every bit or more than he speaks, and uh, and I was satisfied that I, because you know when I wrote the songs, I didn't know that I was going to sing the part at all, hmm. and it was only when Tim and I were recording the demos and we finished this long night in the studio recording all the songs except you know Sally was. I did all the parts for all the songs except for Sally, um, <laughs> like the big voices, the little voices, Jack's voice. And, wow. you know, it was this long night of demoing every song. And uh, I came up to him. I said, you know, Tim, uh, I don't know what you're thinking about the singing voice for Jack. But he goes, yeah, don't worry about it. You'll you'll be fine. And because uh, I was slowly getting attached to the part. I, I try not to, you know. Uh, because I know there's a lot better singers than me out there. But in this one case, I was getting so attached to the character and the part that I just couldn't imagine anybody else doing it. I, I really felt like Jack was part of my own personality at this point. Wow. Well, you, you're, you're, that character's all over our house. We have like paintings, pictures, and like I told you, my wife and I got engaged with Jack and Sally there. It was, you know, it's, it's been a very big part of our lives. So thank you for that music and everything. And lastly, before you, one thing I think about 
when you're as a composer, you talk about this process with Tim Burton, obviously with Dumbo, back to Pee Wee. There's so many amazing films you've done, but you've also, as you mentioned, Darkman, um, Sam Raimi. You've worked with some great filmmakers, Gus Van Sant. Um, how different does your process change as you change filmmakers? So obviously, I think with someone like Raimi, you have enough of a shorthand with him now because you've done so many films with him as well um, that I, I would imagine that. But when you step into a different director, um, do, can you still work your same process as you do with Tim where you write the theme after you see the film? No, I mean, they, they couldn't be more different, really. Um, hmm. You know, Tim, it's a slow process of assimilation and it's a journey to find where how he feels about the film and the music. With Sam Raimi, it's the opposite. Um, you know, you play it once, he goes, that's it. And he goes, okay, buddy, we got it. Um, <laughs> and he's just like real simple and clear. And, you know, once you play it, it's like, okay, that's good. Um, and with Gus Van Zandt, it's very different again. He's going to want to go through a lot of experimenting and then he'll want me to like try something completely the opposite. Let's try taking this music and putting it over a completely different scene. And it's just, it's very different. Gus really likes to experiment and try to put things, use things in a not obvious way. Mm. Um, and very often what I end up in the score of Gus's movie is not necessarily where I wrote this, the music for. Um, which is fine. Wow. That's Gus's process. He, he just loves to mix things up. And sometimes he'll hear something and he'll go, oh, what is that tune? Oh, that's a lullaby I wrote for my son when he was a child. I want to use that. Let's, let's use that over this scene. Um, I go, really? My Oliver's lullaby? <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's the end. Uh, don't worry. Um, and so, you know, Gus is just like, Let's find something that seems like it work, and then let's try the opposite and see what see what it's like. Mm -hmm. So they're just three really different personalities. Um, you know, Gus more experimental, uh, Tim more of a tortured process of finding the center of something, sometimes through a roundabout way, and Sam more like just dealing with uh, you know a farmer. Or you're making it, you know, you're, you're showing your wear to, here's my vegetables. And it's like, yeah, pass on that one, pass on that. Yep, yeah, these look good. Okay, let's go. And uh, <laughs> it's just three totally different personalities. Wow. Well, Mr. Elfman, this has been such an absolute honor. Thank I, you. I have so many questions for you, but I know your time is limited. But uh, I, hopefully one day I would, I, I would love to hear stories about you hearing your themes for the first time in a finished film. Because I can't imagine what that's like for you to work on music for so long and then see a film that's finally edited, fully effects-driven, and then your score is just like... I mean, when your score takes us through Dumbo flying and everything, it is just like... It, it's what makes the scene work emotionally. Um, so I, I hope you... I already know, I know you know this, but I hope you know how much your music means to so many people. So Well, thank you. And I'll look yeah. forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Mr. Elfman. Have a wonderful day, and congratulations on all your amazing work. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, and that was relatively um, a dream interview for me in the sense of I've always I've, Nightmare Before Christmas is a, a film that my wife and I got engaged to with Jack and Sally. Uh, talking to him, hearing his voice, he sounds just like Jack, obviously, with his singing voice particularly. Uh, I did not know the on-set drama with him and Henry Selleck in regards to the uh, what was going on behind the scenes of Nightmare Before Christmas. 
But I couldn't believe he talked about the idea that he wrote a, a piece of music for Warren Beatty and Dick Tracy that he ended up using for Sam Raimi's uh, Dark Man. That was pretty cool. His, Unbelievable. His filmography is unreal. Unreal. It really is. Uh, and, I mean, yeah, when you talk about just the music he's made with Burton, too, from movie to movie, the Batman theme song is probably the most recognizable. But they're different from each movie to each movie. And I find that that to be really exciting when he talked about, you know, how Tim brings different elements and different perspectives to each of his different films and goes down different themes. And the way he's able to sort of switch gears and do something really light um, and then something super, something like Dumbo, you know, and then also do some of the more dark, macabre things that, that Burton has asked him to do. So Yeah, my wife and I actually went to the Hollywood Bowl to see him perform Nightmare Before Christmas as Jack. And he brought out... Catherine O'Hara and they did Jack and Sally on stage it was it was absolutely surreal like just talking to him I've never talked to him before and it was just like crazy to think about the scores he's been involved in um, a lot of work with Raimi I think he did the first Spider-Man movie I think he did those films with mm-hmm. Raimi it's incredible what he's worked on with him so and true the thing is with superhero movies that none of them really have a recognizable theme after that point except for Zimmer like Zimmer did a lot of great work in the DCEU up to this point he gave Wonder Woman that that guitar, electric guitar riff, that's still pretty significant. The Avengers so. theme is now up there, though. It's like that main theme that... Dun, dun, you, da, mentioned, da, 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 da. you mentioned the part with Thor coming into Wakanda, which, believe me, is one of the greatest moments you know, in, in the MCU. But in Infinity War, the first time that I tear up is when Cap emerges from the shadows and the Avengers theme song starts yeah. to play. And it gives me goosebumps. I get goosebumps thinking about it right now. So uh, that's because I'm a, I'm a sick, sick MC- <laughs> yes. yes. And you're just like ready for action. And it does. It, it goes into that big fight scene and they're just incredible. And then what, so, about, what about the scene in Infinity War when Thor's doppelganger uh, j- jumps down into Wakanda but underneath... And it's like this amazing sequence. And then Jordan Peele comes out and explains everything to Jake. Jake, here's your answer to everything. Let me explain this to you. You know, you know I, I, I want to give you, I just want to give you a heads up as to what just happened. My computer, and this is a true story, does this weird thing where like every four or five minutes where it like cuts off sound and then yeah. comes back in. And mm-hmm. right as Kevin said, whatever it is he just said, my sound went out and then came back whenever he was done telling the joke. So whatever you just yeah. said, I didn't hear it's it. Probably- and based on best. your reactions, I'm glad I didn't. And someone in the universe is looking out for me and looking well, out for our friendship because I didn't hear what you just said, and it probably would have ticked me off. Well, I was and telling you that in Endgame, the spoiler uh, at the end of Endgame is Jordan Peele's going to come on screen and actually explain every detail to the ending. That's why it's called Endgame of Us. <laughs> it's literally going to break down everything. It's gonna, that's why it's three hours and two minutes because the movie itself is only an hour and a half. He's going to break everything down for you for the next 90 yeah, minutes. Cool. I'll call the best of the year then. It's going to be, uh, they're going to fight fan us. Yeah. And he's going to reveal. Yeah. Stop, <laughs> See? Sean. These are, Stop. I'm, really, I'm on fire. That was perfect. You're better fan, than us. Fan us. I like that. Hey, for God's sake, don't we have other things to do? I do. Is it Lupita? Lupita is in the MCU. She yeah. can do it. Dude. <laughs> Winston Duke is in the MCU. Guys. We're, we're really on to something here. That's the ending of Endgame. They didn't disappear. Their doppelgangers disappeared. Their real life person <laughs> is still alive. I'm telling you. It's all a big conspiracy. Jordan actually directed Endgame. We just don't know it yet. That's the big twist. Is that Jordan. Under- oh, there are tunnels under Wakanda where the train is. Exactly. Thanos. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm telling you. You, you are. We are spot 
on, Sean. You are that makes more sense on. than the actual ending of us. Sean, you're you're brilliant. You are a role today. Than us really made am. me really, really happy. That was that was beautifully executed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, that Sean was is slap it. happy from from eighty four hours of Game of Thrones in a row. <laughs> That's very true. I do like Sean, right, this... Sean Snow. That's my new my new favorite one too. This week's uh, end game. Uh, end... <laughs> this week's blend. <laughs> wow. Game. Oh, we gotta wrap God, this up, man. My brain is so fried. <laughs> we gotta wrap my this up. My brain is literally fried. <laughs> I cannot do this anymore. Uh, is hashtag sports blend where we're picking our favorite sports movie of all time and I've been told that Kevin gets to go first and can we guess because I think we all know it I, yes I think we all know it right Jake do you know it I I feel like when you say I'll, it it's gonna be super obvious but maybe I'm oh yeah once he says it, it's gonna be super obvious I, I, I'm pretty sure I know what it is no it's no, not gonna no, guess no, no I don't know I'm saying it's Sandlot it's us uh, it's us <laughs> Us is a sports movie. Come on, guys. Think about it. It's a sports movie. She's running in the sand. There's a lot of running in that movie. Sports. Is it Sandlot? Yeah, it's, well, it is Sandlot. All right. Definitely. Tell us why. Tell us why. I mean, it's... it's Now, again, we're talking about favorite. Sandlot is... Was my childhood. Like, next to, like, films like Terminator 2 and films I grew up on in regards to, like, that type of stuff, Sandlot was my ultimate go-to. It reminds me every single time of playing Little League Baseball... Uh, my father used to coach me on the Twins. I played in the All-Stars. But I go back to the feeling of playing baseball with your friends. That was the only thing you had to worry about, right? Like You, you had to be home at a certain time. You had to play baseball with your friends. And like the Wendy Peppercorn sequence is so brilliant <laughs> and still gets me every single time when Squints looks up and like smiles at his friends as she's giving him mouth-to-mouth. I mean, that sequence, every scene in that film still holds up. James Earl Jones is arc at the end was amazing i mean there's so many layers to that movie and the benny the jet rodriguez uh the baseball the just there's like and the s'mores and then the the flashbacks to the to the beast and you know there's just so many we all had that as a kid like you would like go i remember there was a a, a dog that i thought was evil that lived in my neighborhood as a kid that I was afraid to go around the door of where it was and I, and there's just like i don't know it it comes down to favorite, clearly. I'm not saying Sandlot's the greatest sports movie ever made, but it's my favorite sports movie ever That's made. That's why we're doing favorite and, now. Of course, we want an emotional answer. But, I mean, come on. the the Every element, like, oh, I, I, I love uh, Smalls' like, terrible fishing hat that he has in the beginning of the movie, and then Benny gives him another one. I think he gives him, like, Dodgers one. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but there was just, I don't know. I also love that a popular guy took a kid who was being made fun of under his wing, um, that resonated with me a lot because I was picked on as a kid a lot. And I just found that to be a really fascinating structure. And just the movie just perfectly works. It works in yeah. every realm of emotion, nostalgia. And it's still, I mean, the, the, the chew scene when they throw up uh, on that on that rye, when they're eating the chew. I mean, it's just like, I don't know, yeah, yeah. just everything about that movie. Made. And by the it way, really... if you think back now, when the kids were on that ride doing chew, Think about what their doppelgangers were doing underneath. Um, you know, they were also riding that ride too and throwing up on their. On but their what park. happened when they left the park? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they were they were all riding together, man. It's all. It's, it, listen, every movie is now us. Think about it. <laughs> That's the twist. Jake, Jake, what is your pick? I honestly don't know what Jake's pick is. I have no clue. Uh, know what, my know pick, pick is. is Friday Night Lights. Oh, no kidding. Um, I've always been a big advocate of the idea that the best sports movies are not about sports. They're always Mm. about something bigger. Sports is always about something more than the act of of playing with the ball. 
And Friday Night Lights captured something, much like Kevin, Friday Night Lights captured something that I very much grew up with, which is this small town uh, in, in Texas in which the two mm-hmm. most important things are God and football and not in that order. Um, mm-hmm. This idea of this sort of generational uh, passing on of responsibility uh, to something that doesn't really matter, the image of these dads in the stands uh, with their state championship ring screaming at their sons that they've got to win the state championship or they're not going to do anything in their life. The irony that they've won state championships and they are, in fact, now just up in the stands. And it's this really horrible, vicious circle. That's, that is, I mean, this is based on a true story. That is this very vicious, true uh, circle that so many kids have to deal with in these like small towns that in which you know the... The, uh, the, the, the price for the football stadium costs more than most professional football stadiums these days. Most people, you know, they, they might not have money for running water, but they have money for the, the, the top-end uh, you know, Nike cleats to go play football every Friday night. And this sort of snapshot of this small 80s Texas town, uh, and, and then the fact that they lost, that, that you know, it, it, you build up to this moment, so much pressure on these kids. And to me, like, that's life. Yep. That is... That that is what what's I mean sports is a representation of what life is supposed to be you know like these weight and this responsibility and then ultimately failure and then waking up the next day and going like life goes on like that's it yeah. you know the, the yep. road's over and where do we go from here there's this there's the, one of the last images of the uh, movie is all of the kids uh, leaving the stadium with their bags and them saying you know we're gonna miss the lights. And then Billy Bob Thornton, I'm getting chills talking about it. Billy Bob Thornton has a magnetic wall with all the players' names and their positions. And he starts taking those names off yeah, and then starts putting yeah. the new players' names because next season's yep. already next season's getting started. And that's football and that's life. You take it one day at a time, one game at a time, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But at the end of the day, wow. you got to pick back up and you got to go again. And, and Friday Night Lights best represents what I love about sports what I love about life and what I love about movies. Yeah, look at, I mean, if I remember correctly, look at the We Are Marshall story. Didn't they end up losing that game after everything happened anyways? Am I wrong on that? I think they did. I think think they they did did. too. And and, and again, it was like, it it was the triumph of the team coming back together uh, and being able to overcome such a horrible situation. I hope I have that factually. No, I think you're right. And it's funny too, I'll never forget this. Whenever I saw Friday Night Lights in theaters, and in the title cards at the very end, it goes on to say, Next year's team went on to win the state championship, and I remember someone in the audience going, "Well, why didn't I make a movie about that team?" <laughs> and in my head, I just remember thinking, "You just missed the entire point of yep. this movie. The entire yeah. point was about the importance of them losing and what it means that they lost." And uh, it was very rude of Kevin's mom. <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, Gabe, Gabe actually just renamed this episode to Friday Night Fights because that's all we've been doing is fighting the entire episode. That's what it's going to be called on the marquee of our episode this now, week. Did you like the TV show? One of my also, top five or? favorite TV shows ever. Now, do you think that made you like the movie more? I love the movie. I love the movie long before, um, long before uh, the TV show, the show came out. I mean, now I do think the show is actually better than the movie. The show yeah. expands on that, and uh, I honestly think Kyle Chandler's uh, performance as Coach Taylor is one of the all-time great television performances ever. Clear eyes, full hearts can't lose. I have a signed football from Kyle Chandler that says that because of Mr. Kevin McCarthy, but. Um, no, yeah, I got Connie sure. Britton to sign it, not 
Kyle Chandler. No, I got Connie Britton. You got oh, Kyle Chandler. Oh, did I get Kyle Chandler? Okay. You got Kyle but, Chandler. By the way, did you guys read that article about Peter Berg and his favorite book of all time? Jesus Christ. No, you guys haven't heard about this? <laughs> no. Oh, it's no, incredible. It's called, it's called Friday Night Weathering Heights. I was like really impressed that he kind of go <laughs> that, that deep into literature. You know, and, and I think that that was a big basis for Friday Night Lights. I think that was a huge... Can we take like a two-week gap after this episode? I need a breather. Is Friday Night Lights the one where Vanderbeek says, I don't want that's, your that's life? That's Varsity Blues, but thanks. Oh, can we talk about how amazing... I don't want your life. Can we talk about how amazing it is that not another teen movie used the exact same guy from Varsity Blues in the spoof? <laughs> <laughs> hey, do we have time? Can I, can I tell the Kevin McCarthy oh, that movie's Varsity on Hulu, Blues story? By the way, I was flipping through... I was flipping through Hulu, and I saw that, that not another teen movie is available brilliant. on Hulu. So everyone should watch it immediately. Jake, what were you going to say? I really, I, we probably don't have time for it because we need to get to Sean's Go, go. I, I, I need to hear it. Kevin McCarthy, Varsity Blues story. <laughs> and you know what it is, Kevin. What? When oh, oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not right now. Not right now. We'll get, we'll get to that <laughs> I later. I know that. I, I it's think a, we told that story. It's I'm a pretty gr- sure we've told that. Not story. a team movie is Chris Evans' best performance. No, Didn't I'm you kidding. stalk the girl I'm, from it? I'm Did kidding. You stalk the girl from it? At no, a party? we'll get into that later. I didn't stalk anybody. It was. It, we'll, we'll, we'll talk later about that. It's a funny story, though. It is funny. All right, that'll be part of our bonus episode. <laughs> Uh, my pick is uh, slightly controversial because I'm not sure if you guys are going to agree with me that it's a sport or not. Wait. This is kind of like, is the T-1000 a monster? I know right? what you like, did. Isn't that the ongoing debate? What? What did I do? You went Return of the King, didn't you? I mean, the, you, uh, you had to have, right? <laughs> and I the did. sport I mean, is such, war. I'm in <laughs> yeah. such a Game of Thrones mode that I went Return of the King. Uh, I picked the Karate Kid. Um, That's because, a sport. And Karate's I, a sport. I'm debating that Karate's a sport. I agree. Right? Yeah. And it's, 100%. it's competitive. There's a tournament in no. it. And... A, I love that movie, and and partly it's um you know that I got to meet those guys recently and discuss Cobra Kai, but it really is like from a perspective of uh, influential movies from when I was younger, Karate Kid is the f- first and potentially only time that in a movie theater we went to go see it during a matinee. My mom brought me and a friend of mine from school, and we were the only three people in the theater when we saw it because it had probably been out for a long time now at this point. And by the end of the movie, we were standing on our feet, uh, cheering, like cheering because we were so swept up in the story and seeing the tournament and seeing Daniel go through and, and, and come out and win was just we were screaming and yelling at the screen. And uh, I went back and saw it multiple times and just loved it. And the funny part is I saw Rocky uh, years later, the first Rocky. And I was like, this movie ripped off Karate Kid. <laughs> How does this movie get away with just ripping off? And then I realized plagiarism, it's the same director. <laughs> yeah, plagiarism. And made the connection and it's the same director. And it was one of those eye-opening bits of just like, oh, there's a filmmaker who has a voice who can translate from movie to movie. And this guy tells uplifting sports stories. And not that he told a lot of them, but he basically applied a lot of that same formula. And I made this point to the Cobra Kai guys when I interviewed them, when I was able to speak to Ralph Macchio and Billy Zabka, and I said, what benefits your show uh, is that your original movie holds up still. People can go back and revisit it now, and it's still a great story. It's still a tremendous story about a kid who's a fish out, out of water, uh, who's trying to fit in, date the, the popular girl, and keeps running into a bully. Not that it's an original story by any stretch, but the relationship forged between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi is so beautiful, uh, and... To me, it was still one of the greatest movies of all time and sports movies for sure. Sean, so you, you didn't happen to ask the favorite. Cobra Kai guys what their favorite Harrison Ford movie was, did you? Wait, hold on. I want to guess this one. Uh... <laughs> I was just curious. I, I read this somewhere. I didn't. I wasn't I sure didn't. if it was it? true. Um, well, the Cobra yeah. Kai guys, their favorite Harrison Ford movie is Cobra Kai's Beneath. 
No, I didn't know that. Yeah, you didn't know That's that. That's a good oh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, it's a yeah. great, great one with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and, uh, you know, I think, uh, who directed that movie? Was that, um, was that Zemeckis? That was Zemeckis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, instead. Fact, did it what... in between shooting parts one and two of Castaway. Of Castaway. No, instead <laughs> what they revealed to me, which I didn't know, and this is pretty, this is a news-breaking thing, is their favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, oh my God. Film. Really? Yeah, for true Christ Cobra Kai. Oh, true Wrap Cobra Kai. True, yeah, yeah, yeah. true Cobra Kai. Yeah, Sean, did you didn't happen to ask them about Kristen Bell's uh, husband's favorite uh, Karate Kid line, did you? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. What is it? Oh, Kristen Bell's husband is Dax Shepard. His favorite, of course, Cobra, his favorite Karate Kid line is Dax on, Dax off. <laughs> right? I, I was just blown away by that that he had that knowledge to talk about that. So, what time, so next week? What time next week? Well, if the audience picks first. <laughs> Uh, Nikki Nick 305 wins this week's blend game, by the way. Uh, says the sports blend is Bring It On. Bring It On rules. Mm. That movie is fantastic. Well, that and movie. I'm so glad somebody brought it up. Uh, Crystal Daniels says Creed. Alex Auerbach says Happy Gilmore. So a couple of Happy Gilmores. John Ratzenberger, not the voice from the Pixar movies, um, but another guy <laughs> from Chicago. So maybe it is the guy from the Pixar movies. Uh, said Hoosiers. And Anna Louise said Bend It Like Beckham, which is a totally underrated movie. So I think that's fantastic. For next week, now that we've played Sports Blend, you can reach out to us on Twitter and play along with hashtag trailer blend, which is something that we teased <laughs> oh. doing at one point. So you have to come back with us with your favorite trailer what a good I have it. ever. It can be a favorite memory of when you watch a specific trailer if you want to, or it can just be a trailer that was the most effective for whatever reason. So... Head to at realblend.com. Use hashtag trailerblend to play along. You can also email us at realblend at cinemablend.com. That's where you can also send us a review if you choose to, or you can head over to the uh, Apple page and leave something on our iTunes podcast with the 91 star ratings, as I mentioned. Gabe really wants us to get to 100, um, or something horrible is going to happen to Jake. Uh, we'll be back next week where we're going to be able to give reviews of Dumbo. Uh, we'll also talk Shazam because we've seen that one. I'll be able to talk Pet Cemetery. Hopefully the guys have seen it at this point. And we have another very special review next week. Gabe, next week is the Shazam one? Yes. Yeah, we're going to... No. David S. Sandberg. We have we have him on the show next week. The director... And Peter Safran, and, right? Yep. The producer Peter Safran. And we talked All about right. everything from a lot of different great things, from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 to Suicide Squad 2 to a couple of different things. Um, and hopefully next week, Jake won't be as angry about us because maybe... Jordan will Jordan reveal some of these things um, in his um, in his um, postings on Twitter for it's just, it's just Jake. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's time for us to get out. Oh my god! To, I, you can listen to us next week, and until then, Dunkirk. Oh my god! This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.